Well, if you have your Bibles, brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Old Testament now to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 17 verses tonight as we continue in our study through this wonderful book of Holy Scripture, this second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Once you have your Bibles open before you, we will first read God's Word, and then we'll pray and ask for His help and blessing as we study it together. Exodus 4, verses 1 through 17. This is God's Holy Word. Take care how you hear it. Then Moses, speaking to the Lord, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth in all of our hearts. Would you pray with me, friends? O God, truly, give us insight into this, your holy word, as we pour over it, as we give ourselves over to it, as we study it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Grant us the Holy Spirit's ministry and illumine our understanding in our hearts as we receive these things and treasure them up now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of a man being recruited into ministry, preaching and proclaiming the word of God, 
being recruited against his wishes and against his interests otherwise. That's not a story that's terribly uncommon. I have a friend named Josh. We went to college together and we worked uh, together at a Christian camp for a couple of summers. Now, he grew up in a Christian household. He's the son of a Baptist minister and he had himself no interest in pursuing ministry. Now, he himself is a Christian and loves the Lord Jesus, but for his part, he just didn't have much interest in pursuing pastoral ministry. So he graduated from college and he applied for various jobs and he had a performing arts background, so he applied to different theater companies and performing arts centers, no success there. Uh, Given his background in stage management in theater, he tried a traveling Christian performing arts company in another ministry, no success there. He applied for work at the college itself. He later applied for the position of the new director of the Christian camp where we worked. Nothing was panning out. One night around the campfire, he admitted to me that he'd been wrestling with his sense of call to the ministry for some time, months, maybe even years. But he admitted, like Jonah, he'd been avoiding it and resisting it. Well now, with a seminary scholarship opportunity in front of him and a ministry opportunity at his home church where his father was the pastor, he said that he could not ignore the providential call of God any longer. He was ready to bend the knee towards God's call on his life. At this point, he's been serving in ministry for about 15 years in two different congregations with healthy ministries blessed of God. And the stories go on and on. Men, surely you've heard of. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wanting to be a medical doctor, not a minister. Charles Spurgeon, one of my own heroes. John Knox, he was perfectly content to be a Latin tutor for his days and a notary. But the Lord had other plans for him. Now, sometimes the call of God is absolutely clear. That's not always the issue, not the clarity of God's call. Sometimes the issue is our unwillingness to submit to his call in our lives when it comes. Yet the message of our text tonight is that the key in determining a life of gospel usefulness is not your private assessment of your own gifts and qualifications for the work. No, the key to a life of gospel usefulness is the endowment and the gift of God, and his call, his call on your life. That's what you need. If God calls you, he will gift you. And you ought not, you must not refuse his summons. God will supply the equipment. That's his business. You must answer the call. That's your business. And so, while Moses in our text this evening was a prophet and John Knox was a minister, the thrust of this passage does not apply merely to those in pastoral ministry. So whether you are a minister or a mechanic, whether you're a herald or a housewife, whether you're a theologian or a therapist, if you are a Christian, the point is the same. If you have been called to life by God Almighty, you've also been called to service of some sort for God in one shape or another. And so whatever inadequacies in yourself that you may perceive, whatever lack of interest, whatever weaknesses or flaws that you may discern, the point is the same. The Lord who called you will equip you. Your God is more than sufficient for everything to which he calls you in the Christian life and in service to him. Last week we thought about how the call of God in our lives is not merely to save a people, but to save them unto something. God always saves his people unto service of some sort. Not everyone needs to grow up and be a missionary. Not everyone needs to grow up and be a pastor. But everyone, every one of God's people is saved unto service and labor for the kingdom of God in some way, shape, form, or iteration. 
Tonight's passage, bearing that, that truth in mind, says the God who did call you absolutely will equip you, irrespective of whatever inadequacies you perceive in yourself. That was true of Moses. That's true for all of the Lord's children. So I'd like for us to look at this passage by way of examining each one of Moses' objections and seeing how the Lord responds to them, because there's a lesson in each one. If you have your Bibles open, you can look back to the midst of chapter 3, and you'll see that five times there Moses speaks. Uh, In verse 11 of chapter 3, in verse 13 of chapter 3, and then now forward into into chapter 4, verse 1 of chapter 4, again in verse 10, and then finally in verse 13 of chapter 4. Five times Moses speaks, each time objecting, giving a reason why he should not be the one to answer the call of God in his life, to go to Pharaoh to be an instrument of release and delivery of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And yet, to each objection, God displays before Moses his perfect sufficiency for every challenge. That's the message before us this evening. Our Lord is more than sufficient, absolutely sufficient for every challenge. God will supply the equipment, Moses must trust and obey. Moses must answer the call. So let's look through, let's study through the text along those five objections, shall we? Let's take a look at the first objection, what I've decided to title the Who Am I objection. This is back in chapter 3. You can flip there if you want for just a moment. We'll review just a smidgen of chapter 3, and then we'll dive headlong into chapter 4. This is verse 11 of chapter 3. God has sent Moses to be the deliverer of Israel back to Egypt. But Moses, chapter 3, verse 11, see how he responds. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Notice how in answering Moses right afterwards, there in verse 12, God redirects Moses' attention away from Moses and back to God himself. In fact, that's his answer every single time to every single one of Moses' objections. You're asking the wrong questions, Moses. You are oh so aware of your smallness and your weakness and your inadequacy compared to the task. And you're worried that you don't have what it takes. Well, guess what? You are small and weak and inadequate and you don't have what it takes. That's not the point. You're asking, who am I? He's saying to Moses when you ought to be asking, who is the one who is with me? I love what one man says. If you're asking, who am I? What can I do? You're asking the wrong questions. The right question is, who's with me? Is the God of grace and glory with me? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, though you may be small and weak and inadequate, your God is not, and he is sufficient. Close quote. So God answers Moses' concerns about qualifications when he says, Who am I, Lord, that I should go? He answers that question, that objection, by pointing Moses away from himself and back to himself. Who are you, Moses? You're nobody. But I'm God, and I'm with you. Then notice, secondly, in verse 13, if Moses asks, Who am I? He now asks, Who are you? Verse 13 of chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? 
He wants to know what to tell the Israelites is God's personal name, as we saw last week in our previous two studies in Exodus 3. God wants Moses to grasp the sufficiency and the glory and the grace of his God, that Moses, in turn, might be his instrument in proclaiming his God to the world. And so God tells Moses his name. I am who I am. The transcendent, self-existent God of perfect majesty and independent and perfect faithfulness, as we thought about last week. And this, do you see, this is the content of the message when he goes back to Egypt. This is the content of Moses' message. Not, Not so much what God will do, although he will proclaim that, to be sure, but fundamentally, fundamentally, at its base, Moses is to proclaim who God is who he is. First objection, who am I? I'm not qualified to go, Lord. Go, Moses. Don't worry about that. I will be with you. Okay, fine. But what do I tell them? I don't know what to tell them. Positive message? Words of encouragement? Something uplifting? Something inspirational? God says, Moses, here's what you tell them. Declare my name. Tell them of me. That's what you tell them. You see, that's the challenge. That's the challenge when we share our testimony, isn't it? Because here's the question. Who ought to be the main character of that story? A number of us have what we might call boring testimonies. A number of us have what we might call uh, exciting testimonies. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with sharing our testimony as a means to encourage other people, to tell about the faithfulness of the Lord, to tell about how through all the muck and the mire and the misery and our stubborn hearts and our wicked selves that the Lord rescued us from that hellbound path and planted us firmly in those heavenly places in Christ Jesus and brought us to saving faith in himself in and of ourselves, sharing how the Lord went about that and our story of how we passed out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But the problem is, is how we tend to maybe unintentionally skew the angle of the story. Because who ought to be the main character of that story? It must not be me. It ought to be the God who saved me. The the, the thrust of our testimony is not simply how wonderful it is that we were once lost and now we are found. That is wonderful. Praise God. Of course, praise God for salvation. But the thrust of our message is rather to point to the Christ who saves you heard Dr. Wilborn say this morning how sometimes we, we depersonalize grace. And we think of it as, as, as a thing rather than a person. Grace is Christ and it comes from his hand. He is the gracious one. He is the one who deals with his people in grace. The one who found us and saved us. The one who is our greatest treasure, our all in all. The one who is mighty to save the pearl of greatest price. The one about whom all nations must hear and before whom all nations must bow. This is to what what our testimonies and stories and message and ministries and efforts and labors must point. You see, our God is sufficient to qualify us for his service. And he's also sufficient, brothers and sisters, to be the content of our message. We are to say to the world as we point them to Christ, Behold your God. Behold your God. And call them to bend the knee to him. So that's the second objection that Moses gives there. Who am I? 
Who are you? What should I tell them? But then there's a third objection, and now, now we're into chapter 4 proper. Chapter 4, verse 1. You see this next objection Moses gives? As I've summarized it, they won't believe me. It's the they won't believe me objection. Behold, verse 1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Now this is Moses' great fear here, isn't it? No one's going to believe a word I say. I tried to save Israel once before. Remember, Lord, in miniature? That turned out to be a disaster. The Israelites rejected me, got mad at me, drove me away, rebuked me, said they weren't going to listen to me. Who made you a prince or a judge over us? And the Egyptians are still hunting me. I'm a wanted man. Here I am, a dropout, pathetic, embarrassed, in the backside of the desert. Who in the world is going to believe a word I have to say? And to respond to Moses' incredulity, God gives Moses three miracles in verses 2 down through 9. Let's look at each of them for a moment. The first miracle he gives them there in verses 3, 4, and 5. See what happens there. And he said, what's that in your hand? A staff. And God, he said, God said to Moses, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Wouldn't you? (laughs) It'd be terrifying. I hate snakes. I'd be terrified at least. And then God tells him to catch it by the tail. Now, as I just admitted to you, I hate snakes. I have an absolutely irrational fear about them. Uh, I'm not terribly knowledgeable about animals and reptiles, but even I know, even I know, that you're not supposed to take hold of a snake that way. You're supposed to grab it right behind the head, right, so it can't bite you. God tells him to grab it by the tail. That doesn't put him in a great position. But notice, as Moses grabs it by the tail, the snake becomes a wooden stick again. Now, now, the symbolism here is marvelous. God, God has a wonderful, polemical sense of humor. You might know that the emblem, the royal symbol of Pharaoh and of imperial Egypt was a cobra. He, he Pharaoh, wore a cobra on his crown. That was the logo, the symbol of the king's power. It was meant to convey fear to the hearts of Egypt's enemies. You don't mess with a cobra, for it will strike you and destroy you. That's the impression that Egypt wanted to give off for any would-be opponents in the ancient world. And here, in this miracle, what is God communicating? That because God is with Moses, that Pharaoh and all the might of Egypt is like a plaything. It's like a toy, a walking stick in Moses' hands. God is with Moses. Moses can grab this snake tail without fear and render it impotent. Pharaoh, you see, isn't the real king in God's world, as much as he likes to delude himself into thinking so. No, the Lord God Almighty reigns, and his word is true, and Pharaoh in all of his supposed might is as a plaything, a jokeable plaything in Moses' palm through the power of Almighty God. That's the symbolism in this miracle. Sometimes people wonder, well, when you come to these older texts of Scripture, you know, is it, is it polemical or is it historical? What's the, what's the point that God is making here? And the, the great news is, friends, we don't have to choose. Is it historical or is it polemical? The answer is both. The same thing is going on in Genesis chapter 1, for that matter. As, as God, through, the, through the, the pen of Moses, as he's inscribing these words down and laying out the days of creation and how, it brought, how he brought the cosmos into being, 
You might think, well, some, some scholars will argue, well, really what's going on there is it's not a, not a historical description of how the universe was created, but it's a polemical jab at Egypt as Israel is freed from them now and they're, they're mocking Egypt and they're making fun of Egypt because, as you know, Ra, uh, the sun god of Egypt, one of the chief gods in their panoply, maybe the chief god of their panoply, well, again, why, is it have to, why do we have to choose between historical versus polemical? It's a both and. As God is laying out that historical account, as Moses is laying out that historical account, he's taking those jabs at Egypt. You worship Ra, the sun god? He's your chief in your panoply of deities, Egypt? <laughs> I didn't even get around to making the sun until day four, says the Lord Jehovah, God Almighty. It's a both and. It's a wonderful thing that scripture does. And we see that happening here in chapter four. So that's the first miracle. There's a second miracle, verses six and seven, the second miracle. This time, God tells Moses to put his hand inside his cloak. And when he draws it out, it's leprosy. Now, imagine how horrifying it would be for Moses to suddenly see his hand covered with this disease. Because at that time, the only solution to this disease was to lock someone away in complete isolation, lest the whole community get infected. But then he puts his hand back inside his cloak, and he brings it out, and he is healed. Here's the point. The message behind this miracle is that life and death, wounding and healing, wrath and mercy are God's, not Pharaoh's. Pharaoh, in the Egyptian cosmology and in the Egyptian theology and their way of understanding, Pharaoh was as a god unto the people. Pharaoh was known to declare, if I declare day is night, if I declare night is day, so shall it be. God's telling Pharaoh, none of this. Not so. Pharaoh is impotent. Pharaoh is impotent and Yahweh is omnipotent. And that will largely be the message for the remainder of Exodus. That Pharaoh is impotent and Yahweh is omnipotent. And that is a lesson that Pharaoh has to learn at so costly a price. You think that you have life and death. You think that you have day and night. You think that you have prosperity or famine in your hands, Pharaoh. Think again. They're in the Lord's hands. That's the second miracle, the healing of his hand in and out of his cloak of leprosy. The third miracle there in verses 8 and 9. If they will not believe Moses on account of his first two miracles, the snake into a staff, the healing of the hand of leprosy, then Moses is to draw water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And when he does, the water will turn to blood. Now why is this significant? Again, with that wonderful polemical jab that God is doing here. You see, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River as a kind of quasi-deity, as a god. The Nile, as you might know, was the source of fertility for the land. The people of Egypt were dependent on the River Nile for life, for water, for fish, for food, for sustenance. When it was a calm and flowing river, it served them well. And when the god was angry, the river raged and flooded. People died. Even while other nations suffered drought and famine, Egypt was fertile and rich in resources because of the Nile. Hence, Joseph going down and his family going down to take refuge there during the seasons, the years of famine. And so, Egypt, pagan society as they were, they regarded this river as a god, as a deity to be worshipped. So what does this miracle demonstrate? Well, here is Yahweh, the one true God, changing the Nile, their life-giving river deity, changing it to poison in a word. My God, 
renders your God hapless and pathetic. Right? That's how the pagan societies love to measure power, you know. Right? If my kingdom conquers your kingdom, guess whose God is better? If my kingdom conquers your kingdom, guess who wins? Guess whose deity is the more, is the more powerful deity? God says, fine, you want to play that game? I'll play that game. The Lord is beating them at their own game. What's going on here? These three miracles are really simply designed to point not to Moses, but to Moses' God. God is proving the validity of his word by these supernatural signs and miracles. He's authenticating his promises. That's what miracles always do in Scripture. Sometimes, as an aside, sometimes we, we misunderstand and we think that everybody in the Bible and every era was performing miracles all the time. Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, the apostles, and everybody else too. Well, that's not quite accurate. You'll notice that as you read through Scripture and you look through the whole sweep of Old to New Testament, that miracles always occur in these clusters chronologically. There's a bunch here for a while around Moses, and then there's none for quite a long time. And then there's, there's a bunch here for a while around Elijah and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the, major, and the minor prophets. And then there's none for a long time. And then there's some more miracles with John the Baptist and, of course, with Jesus most of all. When do these miracles tend to pop up? And the point is, God gives miracles not to be the normative experience for God's people. But he gives them, you see, in various phases of redemptive history. Whenever new words of revelation were coming from God, new words being written down and inscripturated, or new words being spoken from the mouths of prophets or spoken from the mouths of the apostles, these words of revelation from God were accompanied often by miracles in order to validate and authenticate and prove that these words were trustworthy. That's why, you see, there was such an explosion of the supernatural and the miraculous around the era of Jesus and the apostles. No wonder when the new covenant era is being ushered in, God Almighty, God in the flesh, God incarnate on earth, doing his earthly ministry and performing acts and miracles as he did, and then the apostles taking his words and propagating those words, and furthermore, the Lord validating that ministry and validating those words with the miracles that they performed. You may remember Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, concerning the message of salvation, the message of Jesus. It says this, starting at the end of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. See, these miracles were God's way of saying, my word is true, and its credibility does not rest in the messenger, in this case Moses, it doesn't, the, the credibility of the message doesn't rest in the messenger, but on the credibility of the God whose word it is. And it is entirely trustworthy. Christ's resurrection is the greatest miracle of all, of course, to the validity of the word of God and the, the words of Jesus and this new era of redemption that the Lord Jesus brought. Remember Matthew 12, verse 39? The Pharisees demanded a sign. Jesus said, no sign will be given to this generation but the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be. Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. And that would be the great final proof and evidence that God's word is true. 
I love how one commentator put it. Like Moses, we don't need to prove the truthfulness of Scripture. We need only proclaim that it is true because the God who raised again from the dead the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, he stands behind and over his word and he speaks in his word and he attests and authenticates its truth. Close quote. So that's the third objection. Let's look now at Moses' fourth objection there in chapter 4, verse 10. O Lord... I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I don't have the skills. I'm not able, Lord. So, so far, his objections. Who am I? Who, who are you? Number three, they won't believe me. And now, here we are at number four. You know what, Lord? I'm not able. I'm not skilled enough. Now, maybe Moses had a stutter. Maybe he had a, a fear of public speaking. Scholars are debated on this. You see here that he says that he is slow of mouth and slow of tongue and stumbling in speech, depending on how your English translation renders it. But whatever the case, Moses says that he can't undertake this mission that God's assigning him because he just doesn't have what it takes. Well, God doesn't seem terribly moved by that excuse, does he? Verse 11, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You see, at this point, Moses is still looking in the wrong direction. God is working to shift his gaze so that Moses would look away from himself, away from himself, to the sufficiency of God for his work. In other words, if I might reverently paraphrase it here, God is saying to him, Moses, your mouth belongs to me. Your your stutter is mine. I made you. I will use you. I am sending you. The results are not your business. They're my business. You just obey, Moses. Another minister pointed me to Charles Spurgeon's conversion as an illustration of this very point. You might have heard the story, but in case you haven't, it's worth telling in short. Spurgeon can't make it to his regular church, and he's walking in this terrible blizzard, and so he turns inside a nearby Methodist chapel because he can't go on any further. Well, as he goes into this Methodist chapel, it turns out the regular preacher at this chapel, he didn't make it either due to the storm. So an average church member got up to fill in. Here's Spurgeon's own words of the event. This man was really stupid. There's a great intro. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. He expounds his passage as best he can, eventually fixing his eye on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, Young man, you look very miserable, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Spurgeon goes on. And then lifting up his arms, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Close quote. It was a poorly delivered message by all rhetorical standards, by an untrained man, But he preached Christ as the only hope of salvation for sinners. And he pressed Jesus on Spurgeon's conscience. And God used that 
unlearned, ineloquent Christian to bring Spurgeon to faith in Jesus Christ, a man who would become one of the greatest preachers of the gospel of grace in the English language. Who has made man's mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. The Apostle Paul makes much the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which is why we read that passage earlier tonight. Paul says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, friends, God delights to take poor, lisping, stammering tongues and to fill them with his word and buy them to do mighty things. He loves to take weaklings and cowards and incompetence. That's what we tell ourselves we are sometimes, aren't we? I'm weak. I'm useless. I'm pathetic. I'm incompetent to the task. God loves to take us and to use us. So tell of Christ. The sufficiency isn't in you in the first place. Fill your mouth with messages about Jesus. There are all kinds of pulpits which are not in our church buildings. Metaphorical pulpits, if you like. Do it poorly if you must. But tell of Christ. And see how God will use you, even you. So that's the fourth objection. And finally, Moses has one last desperate objection. (laughs) Verse 13. Poor Moses. He's at the end of his rope at this point. He's run out of excuses. Now he's really pleading. Anyone but me. I just don't want to do it. So here's his final protest. First, who am I? Then who are you? Then they won't believe me. Then fourth, I'm not skilled. And then finally, fifth, please, just send someone else. I don't want to do it. And God is angry with him. You see there, the anger of the Lord, verse 14, was kindled against Moses. But God is also gracious. Because look at his answer to Moses in verses 14 to 17. Essentially, he tells him, Aaron, your brother, will be your co-laborer. You will not go at it alone. I am equipping you with someone else to help. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are not alone in the work. We need one another. Isn't that a fundamental principle throughout all the scripture? Isn't that part of what what Dr. Wilborn was highlighting even this morning as we were thinking about the Lord's Supper and gathering around the Lord's table? That God has always saved his people into the church. The church is an indispensable part of the gospel message. God has always saved his people into not an isolated, individualistic quest of faithfulness. But he saves people, young and old. Men and women, boys and girls, married and single, CEOs and custodians, Jew and Gentile, he saves them into a covenant community. God has given us brothers and sisters. I wonder how often it has been the case that you have stayed the course, that you have remained on track because some other brother or sister, maybe even someone sitting in this room with you right now, some just as weak and frail as you, But someone was willing to stay the course with you, to challenge you, to confront you, to keep at it with you, to not let you wander off and not forget you, but to help you keep going at it even when every fiber of your physical being wanted to throw in the towel. They had their eyes fixed on Jesus and they helped you fix your gaze on him too. Christian, here's the blunt truth. We are insufficient. 
We were created for community. And by God's design, by his intentional design, we need our brothers and sisters. And God in his grace and in his sufficiency has provided for you a church that we might be faithful in our calling. We need each other. That's part of God's gracious provision. We need each other to spur one another on, to guard, to rebuke even, to encourage, to exhort. To what is God calling us where we are stuttering and stumbling around looking for excuses? I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Is God calling you to some kind of service in the church? Sacrificial giving? To the slaying of sin? To evangelism? To some kind of ministry? I don't know what are all the unique circumstances or where your conscience might be tugging you or what doors God might be providentially affording you, but I suspect all of us if we're honest with ourselves, are fearful and shirking away from service, some service to which God is calling us because of some kind of fear or doubt or resistance on our part. I love how Boyce put it. God's sufficiency means we have no excuses. God's sufficiency means we know no real lack. His strength is made perfect in weakness. His grace is sufficient for you. Hear that. His grace is sufficient for you. What excuses are you offering today for disobedience? There is no lack that you may have that God cannot supply. None. There is no fear that you can ever face that he cannot overcome or see you through. No valley so dark through which you may pass that his rod and staff will not comfort you. No challenge to your message that his power does not answer. So obey. That's part of the lesson, part of the message, part of the call of our passage. Obey. You have work to do. I have work to do. Let's go. But obey looking up. Obey looking away from yourself to the God of all grace who is sufficient for you. Close quote. Oh, friends, praise God for his word. Praise God for his grace. And praise God for his all-sufficiency. And especially for an all-sufficient Savior. May the Lord bless the ministry of his word to us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you truly are sufficient for us. Help us to remember not who am I, but rather who is with me, who is with us, and to remember that your grace is sufficient. Whatever calling you have in our lives collectively and individually, whatever tasks to which you are calling us, whatever new obedience we need to render unto you, your strength is made perfect in weakness. So therefore, open our lips, like the psalmist, that we may declare your praises. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.